0: Thank you for finding your way back to the Trojan Talk podcast once again. No surprises, this show. It's myself, Ryan Young, publisher of Trojansports.com, and our resident analyst, Max Brown, the former USC quarterback. That is our usual in-season tandem on the podcast. And we had so much to talk about this week. There was no room for anybody else to, to jump on. So it was just me and Max going at it. I mean, 5-0, and number six-ranked team in the country. Caleb Williams with a masterful performance and bounce-back effort after the uncharacteristic struggles and accuracies the week before. He puts all that to rest, obviously, with his performance in the Trojans' win over Arizona State last weekend. And who better to break down quarterback play than a former quarterback, our quarterback, Max Brown. So we will get into all the storylines of the week. A lot of Caleb Williams talk, make predictions, you know the routine. Let's get right into it. Okay, let's do it. Back in the show, as always, every week, you know him. The former USC quarterback, our Trojansports.com analyst, Max Brown. Max, how are you?
1: Brian, what's going on? I'm doing well. How are you?
0: I'm good. You had the pleasure of watching uh, Colorado, Arizona over the weekend. The end of the Carl Durrell era.
1: Yeah, end of the era, it feels... Interesting, two teams in what was once the Pac-12 South, now with uh, head coaching vacancies. and It's always interesting because it's two fan bases that I think they believe they should be competing for a Pac-12 title, at least be competitive every year and compete for a Pac-12 title every few years type of thing. But if every fan base is saying that, then the math doesn't align. So it'll be just interesting to see how the Colorado and ASU jobs shake
0: out. Yeah, I'm not sure if USC fans have been paying all that much attention to the uh, buffaloes but while the actual bye week comes in two weeks there's another bye week when they when they play colorado because that game is going to be absolutely one-sided but not this week this week number six usc has washington state which is off to a pretty strong start this season we're going to break down that matchup but as always we start with a review on the trojans performance 42 25 over, over arizona state and it was the Caleb Williams response game all last week. Whether it was overblown or not, and I think there's been some polarizing opinions there, uh, Caleb Williams was the topic, the main target of questions, coming off that just uncharacteristic performance at Oregon State where he completed 44.4% of his passes, which after watching him the first couple weeks of the season would have seemed impossible that he could be a sub-50% passing guy ever so there were natural questions and i think we pretty quickly knew there wasn't anything physically wrong but there was still some curiosity as to how did that happen and you know sure he threw the game-winning touchdown to win that game two weekends ago but still just for most of that game he was not caleb williams and we did not talk to him last week so we never got his input on that we asked lincoln riley we asked his teammates And they just totally dismissed and downplayed it and and clearly with good reason as he comes out versus Arizona State looking like vintage Caleb Williams, 27 of 37 for 348 yards, three touchdowns, his first pick of the year, but also 44 rushing yards and a touchdown and just some dazzling highlight plays for, that will be near the front of his season highlight video. Max, what did you think of Caleb's response? (laughs) What jumped
1: out to me is the the mobility. I mean, the ability to escape the rush. I think I saw a line that was, hey, I don't know if USC wins that game without Caleb Williams. That, to me, might be a little a little strong, uh, but the game's obviously very close without Caleb Williams. I just think, you know, he responded in a, in a big-time way, and I love Lincoln's analogy he used versus Oregon State of, hey, Caleb was like a pitcher, and maybe he didn't have his st- the best stuff that night, but you know the next week has that mentality and uh, and responds, but you no, know, his legs uh, jumped out at to me. I, I think for me, it, it's it's funny because when you look at the past, what three quarterbacks for USC? You got you got Keaton Slovis, JT Daniels, and Sam Darnold, and JT and Keaton had their moments where they were really good, but you get the sense similar to how Darnold was at USC, where I mean. Your quarterback's not just really good, or not just executing the offense, but can make big time plays outside of the offense. That's what Caleb Williams is doing. That's what Sam did at SC. That's what Caleb Williams is doing, and uh, I, I was guilty of it as well. But just thinking that, hey, maybe Caleb Williams is just a byproduct of his play caller and the scheme that you know um, Lincoln Riley has and the receivers that he has, but. He's showing now that it's more than just the scheme. It's more than just having the Blitnickoff Award winner outside and having five-star receivers to, to throw to, or I guess a five-star receiver to throw to. I mean, this dude's special. He's shown it, and I mean, you can make the argument that he's he's right up there in the in the in the top tier of of any quarterback in the uh, in the country.
0: Yeah, his his best version, I think, has to be as good as anybody that's out there. I can't. I mean, he's on top of his game. I can't imagine anyone. Is more dynamic or brings more to the table now we'll see how often he gets there this season obviously this came against a a bad arizona state team that has, has lost every one of its fps games this year and uh, fired his coach obviously and had been really reeling had lost to eastern michigan so different circumstances than going on the road against oregon state and i'm not de- detracting from the performance at all it was an amazing performance great response but you know i think we'll just keep tracking it as the season goes along. And if he can play like this against a uh, Washington state or Utah, then I think maybe he's really firmly in that Heisman conversation again. I haven't been tracking the overall Heisman picture. It's kind of early, but that was a Heisman performance to me over the weekend. Just because it was so visually impressive. I mean, we'll go through a bunch of his plays, but the one that I just cannot get over is the, the pocket collapses in the end zone He's in peril for his safety, and he has the presence of mind to jump and throw a pass to the sideline for a first down to Jordan Addison. I mean, I talked to several players today about that, and I asked Jonah Monheim. I said, "What was it like watching that playback in film?" And he goes, "You know, we take it for granted in the flow of the game. Like, obviously, he's blocking. He's not watching Caleb, what he's doing. He goes." I just thought, okay, great. We got a first down somehow. Let's, let's keep going. And I watched it on film. I said, Oh my God, he actually did that. And and that was my reaction too. I, it's, I don't know how many quarterbacks could do that. Have you seen him play like that before?
1: I have not. And it was wild. I mean, we got our, we got our favorite breakdown or favorite play segment to break down. And I, I almost went there. It's funny because I think it's an incredible play. I think it shows the trust that he had in, in Jordan Addison to come down with it. But, If I'm that DB, if I'm that DB coach, I'm like, guys, come on now. We got it. We got it. We got to do something there. But credit a playmaker for making a play. That's what Caleb Williams did.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, that alone deserved to be on every highlight show of the night. But he had a bunch of plays throughout the game and a bunch of great throws. Great third down pass to Brendan Rice. That was another one of those missile shots. If I'm recalling the receiver correctly on that one, just looked like himself again. And then the scrambling is what I want to get to next. He really does just have this next level ability to elude and evade pass rushers in the pocket. And I think it's really maybe covered up how much he's been under pressure this season. And and we've talked before maybe some of that is also his fault for holding the ball too long, but he just seems so confident in his ability that I don't care who's coming or which way they're coming from, I can get around them and get out of this. Again, n- not to keep going to the to the max with with, with everything here, but who else in the country do you put in that conversation of guys that are just that incredible in dancing in the pocket and and escaping trouble and getting out and making plays happen like he does?
1: Yeah, to me, it's Bryce Young. I mean, that's what I, when I was hesitating, when I said, uh, you know, he's in that top tier rather than the the, the top guy because, I think Bryce Young is in that conversation. I think it's it's different, right? He's more slight. I think he's probably a bit more quick twitch and a little bit less uh, stocky, so to speak. But I put those guys in, in or him in that category. I'm trying to think who else is out there. In terms of strictly the mobility, I mean, it's hard to find that combination because most of the dual-threat guys in college, right, like you're preparing for them as if they are a runner in some capacity. Yeah. I don't think coaches are you know, allocating resources to Caleb's legs because you don't have the luxury to do that because his arm is so good, right? Like, it's the Russell Wilson factor, right? I mean, I don't think many NFL defensive coordinators, when Russell was really running the rock, were truly allocating resources to Russell Wilson running. Maybe a spy here and there, but it was, no, he's so good with his arm, we have to respect everything in the pass game, but if he beats us with his legs, like, all right, we just got to make do. And it feels like that's how defensive coordinators are against Caleb Williams, which is what makes his running game so effective because it's not something that you can, uh, you know, totally game plan for because there's so many different ways to beat you.
0: It's a great point, and I don't know what the actual breakdown is. I'd have to, have to go back and look, but it, it seems from what Lincoln Riley has told us and what Caleb has told us that there aren't a whole lot of design run plays for him. There, there are some, but, but these are mostly reactions and, 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 and creations on his part. In an ideal game for him, he wouldn't do any of that he'd have a clean pocket and, and make throws all day but he can do that it just adds to the to the repertoire and so you know after the game of course it was it was more questions about how Caleb worked through his struggles the previous week and got back on track this and that and you could just tell that Lincoln Riley had reached his his uh, tolerance level with those questions and and he just laughed and he goes like it wasn't ever a doubt or concern for me at all like he's a great player Great players who usually don't have two bad games in a row. Like it wasn't even a thought.
1: You see, that means you let up easy on me because I kind of asked a similar question Monday night, and I had not seen the postgame presser. So good on you, Lincoln rally for not making me uh, feel bad about myself.
0: He's always respectful and polite in answering questions, but I can just tell from his reaction, the laugh, and just like like guys, like it wasn't ever a concern that he was amused or, or not amused by the volume of questions about Caleb Williams over the last week. As I said last week, like if this team had more going wrong for it, then maybe there wouldn't have been that focus. But it's it's been clicking in so many ways that whenever there's any any little thing uh, off track, it's, it becomes a storyline. So it probably was overblown, but it, it gave us a lot of father for the last week, and he certainly uh, answered all the questions on the field with his play, which brings us to our favorite weekly segment, Max Brown's favorite Lincoln Riley play call of the week. Max, the stage is yours. What do you have this week?
1: There we go. Yeah. I actually got a Lincoln Riley play call. And, uh, if we got the time, I got an Alex Grinch play call too. Oh. i love, to, uh, lo- love to showcase that. Love it. that yeah. That, that jumped out of me, but no, I mean the play that was phenomenal this week. And it, it's funny. Two throws stuck out to me. One was another hole shot um, by Caleb Williams. The hole shot is when you drive what could be a vertical route. Caleb Williams drives the ball in between the safety and the corner on the sideline. He's done it like four times this year. To me, that's one of the hardest throws as a quarterback that you can make. Just takes a ton of confidence, a ton of arm strength, accuracy, timing, the whole deal. I did it again this week, which those are the NFL-level throws. But the, the, the play that jumped out to me was late in the first quarter. Uh, game was tied. Caleb Williams is rolling out to his right in the end zone and, and finds Mario Williams, and he's throwing across his body. He's basically fading towards the USC sideline with the defensive lineman in front of his face. And it's impressive for a few reasons. It's, one, impressive because... You know, the confidence to even make that throw, the arm strength to make sure the ball gets there. I mean, that's if it's not Caleb Williams, you might be saying, oh, it's a bad decision, right? He's he's somewhat thrown across his body. You never know how those defensive backs are, are trailing towards the football in that direction, like a backside safety or something like that. But he recognized the defense. He felt that, that, that window open, and that's what great players do. They make plays off, off schedule. It's also impressive – because it's not great routes by Jordan Addison and Mario Williams. They get jammed up close together, and that spacing is not is not great. With that, it also shows how dynamic these receivers are, because midway through the play, it, it, it's messed up. ASU did a good job of, of squeezing Williams, uh, uh, Mario Williams and Jordan Addison, but credit Mario Williams. He, he basically just kind of fits in that, that empty zone at the C, where USC is in the end zone, and to me, if we rewind like two months, I wasn't sure, oh, is Mario Williams, is he going to be a true slot receiver? Is he going to be asked to be on the outside? And the answer has been, yes, he is our slot receiver. And it's plays like this where he's finding that empty zone, Wes Welker like, that, you know, help make plays. It's not always going to be perfect. So, yes, Caleb Williams is going to play, but Mario Williams found that vacated zone as well. And then the other side is when you line up Jordan Addison and Mario Williams on the same side. Even though Mario Williams is a big time threat, teams are going to focus on Jordan Addison, and I think that's what happened with ASU. Is they did a good job initially. You had about like you had like a corner route and did like a, a, a um, uh, uh, called like a five yard corner and like a ten yard corner at the back pylon. That both ASU DBs focus on Jordan Addison. It opens up a crease for Mario Williams. You also saw Josh Follow in there getting involved with like a little blocking flat route, which. You know, always interested to see how the tight ends are playing out in this offense. They've had some, you know, a little bit of a stronger role the past couple of weeks, but didn't show up as much this past game. Anyways, I thought overall, just players making plays. An awfully impressive uh, throw by Caleb Williams.
0: Now, now, isn't conventional coaching not to throw the ball across your body like that, especially while fading away?
1: Definitely conventional coaching. It reminds me of, like, Basketball, when you, it's like, oh, conventional coaching is don't ever shoot a uh, transition three. Mm-hmm. But when you're an elite, elite shooter, you're Steph Curry, like that traditional coaching kind of goes out the window. That's kind of how it is with Caleb Williams, is like when you're in scramble mode, that's where big time plays can happen. It's also where big time turnovers can happen. But at that point, if you're Lincoln Riley, you just got to trust your uh, trust your QB, Caleb Williams, to go out there and make a play. So
0: um, that's what he did. No, he sure did, and it just really underscores the confidence he plays with, which has never been in question because, you know, to struggle like he did last week, just to mention that one last time, um, yet still throw the game-winning touchdown pass on the, on the throw he did speaks to the confidence he plays with at all times. On that play, we, we've, we've talked each week in this segment about how most of these plays have multiple options. Was that the, the option number one, you think, or – was was there any part in there for him to actually run with the ball if there was a hole because he was rolling out to his right? Was, was Addison option two, three? What do you think?
1: Yeah, I view it as 1A, 1B, Addison to uh, Mario Williams. I'm sure that's how they teach it too. So it's 1A, 1B in terms of you, you're trying to high-low one defender, that corner for ASU. We talked about ASU did a good job of bunching up those guys, so you're not able to high-low the corner. So it's 1A, 1B. I'm actually not sure – I think Josh Follow is supposed to block on this play and does not execute that because he's caught in this awkward zone of like, oh, I was supposed to block the D end. Oh, the D end beat me. So then now I'm going to like roll, go out in a route. That's kind of the vibe that I got. <laughs> um, not totally sure there, but assuming... Okay, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Assuming that's supposed to be a route, then Josh Follow would be two. Um, and then the last option, and this is coach, without a without a doubt. If you're on the left hash and you call a rollout right, the third option is to run. I don't care if you're me back there as a pocket passer dude or you're mobile like uh, like Caleb Williams. That third option, especially in the red zone, is to run, and it's because all right, you're high-lowing that flat defender, that corner. Well, if he goes with the receiver, hypothetically, there could be a vacated zone there for your legs to run. So without a doubt, that's a big factor for a play call like this, and it's also a big factor of why it's a left hash Play call. This is a right hash play call. It's much harder for a quarterback to roll out to his left and continue to run and have that be a viable option yeah. because this is a left hash call. It makes uh, makes a lot more sense.
0: Good stuff. Save your uh, Alex Grinch play for our defensive talk in a little bit, but I look forward to it. Um, with Caleb, I just I probably should have mentioned this when we were talking about his mobility, but I had a conversation with another reporter the day after the game. And his comment to me really resonated with me. And he goes, I think I'm convinced now that college teams should really just prioritize recruiting mobile, mobile quarterbacks. And that had been a talking point for fans the last few years with, with JT Daniels with, I thought Keaton moved around decent enough, but he wasn't a dual threat. And we just kept hearing, they've gotta have a running quarterback in there. That's, that's why the Jack Sears debate emerged three years ago because of his mobility. And I always just said, I mean, ultimately the most important thing is how you throw the ball. So I would, I would want the best passer regardless of his mobility. But like my my colleague said, I I, I kind of start to see it now how much Caleb's escapability elevates the offense and raises the floor for this offense because he can just erase so many mistakes. So that's, I'm, I'm kind of rethinking my thought on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where you know if Caleb wasn't a great thrower, then in my opinion, his legs wouldn't matter. Um, You know, like, so it, it it works both ways. I think there's also something you said about bigger picture in football, just the general baseline for how mobile a quarterback has greatly increased over the past decade and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to be able to still throw and operate from the pocket because Caleb Williams is able to do that that's what opens up, you know, the ability for his legs to be a factor versus if he couldn't throw and ASU was stacking the box, I guarantee his legs would not be nearly as uh, as effective.
0: Okay, that's, that's a great counterpoint. And you're basically describing Emory Jones on the other side, whose, whose best skill is running the ball and he's had a, a pretty limited career. He's, he can make a good pass every now and then, but his consistency is, is his drawback. And uh, yeah, I think that's basically the alternate version of what we just talked about. So maybe the conclusion is that if you can recruit the Caleb Williams, you do it.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. But, I mean, gone are the days of USC recruiting guys like me. I think that's uh, that's, that's a fair statement. I mean, a decade ago, pocket passer, right, guys like myself and Matt Liner was much better than I ever was, but I don't think... I don't think a guy like Matt Leiner gets recruited to SC now. That might be a hot take, but uh, I really don't think so. And I think he would probably tell you the same thing. It's Just a different, different era of football. I actually saw Mark Sanchez say that on a podcast the other day, and, and Sanchez was more athletic than than both of us. Um, but it's just the ba- Like I said, the baseline of how mobile you need to be in this day and age as a quarterback is just it's just increased. And it's a byproduct of guys in, in youth football that you know may have once played. Receiver because of the offensive scheme they were in. Now, you know, quarterback's more uh, more enticing because of the guys they're, they're watching on Sunday and whatnot. So, yeah, I think uh, Lincoln Riley, I mean, he's always done that, right, for the guys that he's recruited. But it's just a, a, a new era and a, a, a more exciting one for sure.
0: Last point on Caleb Williams, and I'm going to mention this because the impressive part, the significance to me, is not that they threw a pick, but that it took five games for him to throw a pick. That's, that's pretty damn impressive. Uh, it looked like a miscommunication. He said that he wasn't in sync with Addison on the play. I have to see it again. I only watched it the one time, but it felt like Addison never even turned around for that ball. What did you see on that interception and, and where do you think the breakdown happened?
1: I think the breakdown happened because either, yeah, I mean, Caleb pre-played the play in his mind. So in that scenario, when your receiver's running a fade, there's really three things that can play out. It can be an over-the-shoulder ball, Right, Like a little level two ball. it can be it could be a back shoulder ball or it can be you know like somewhere in between. like you know it's either on your, on your back hip, go get it right behind his head or over the shoulder. And I think it was just either Caleb pre-playing the play in his mind or he saw a certain release out, out at the start and thought he could back shoulder it rather than over the top. and Jordan Addison thought the other way and it, that's why it looks like a terrible pick. like, oh, what are you doing? but that miscommunication is a result of, of why something like that happens. And I mean, I, I loved Caleb's answer afterwards. He's like, you know, it's football, things like that happen. Um, for every time that you get it right, there's going to be times where you don't and that whole back shoulder versus over the top. That's how I read that of all rally. Just, you know, kind of a brain fart, so to speak, but uh, it's happened. I've been, the, I've been there before. Yeah.
0: It makes sense. And, and to take it even further, that was the first team turnover of the season. So we, we, it is remarkable. We, we talked about all the turnovers they're forcing to not have one until the fifth game just speaks to how well organized this team is compared to where where it was before. So we don't have to belabor that. But. Another,
1: stat, uh, another stat that shows that too is the uh, third down conversions as well. Yeah. I mean, to only have, what was it, nine drives in the game or like, It was something, or 10 drives in the game. It was something really, really small. That is not a lot of drives in the game. To be 8 for 9 on third down, the highest percentage since 1996 in the Pac-12, that's remarkable. For baseline for for folks, I believe when I put it at SC, we had 35% was kind of average. If you were 50% in the game, that's winning football. The fact that USC was... Approaching ninety percent on third down in a real game. It's not like this was a blowout game. This is a I mean, we took care of business. But you know, forty-two to twenty-five. It's not like this is just some cakewalk game. And uh, you know, that, that's 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 executing. That's getting it done. That's no lulls. That, that's something that we've er, right ever since we've worked together. We've had periods of USC football where like you know, there's lulls or just you know, guys taking taking their foot off the gas or just a goofy series like here or there where so you don't really know why don't really know why they stubbed their toe, but it happened. Like, this is the sign of a really well-coached football team that that just doesn't happen with this offense. I mean, I know Oregon State was a little bit different, but that was that felt like an outlier rather than the other way around, so to speak.
0: No, absolutely. I mean, there's there's so many ways you can qualify uh, how, how uh, impressive this offense is and what Lincoln Riley has done, and that's certainly one of them. I would, I'll close the book on Caleb for this discussion. But, you know, in mentioning his escapability and evading sacks, it goes in part to the, the blocking. And USC was without starting right guard Justin Didich for the game. He warmed up pregame, but had his, had, I think it was his right leg very wrapped, wrapped up. We don't know what the exact injury is, but it was a pretty significant wrap. And he was on the bike before the game. And Gino Quinones made his first career start in his place. It's. I know it's hard to evaluate interior line play, but let's just take the group as a whole. How do you assess the offensive line at this point? Yeah, it's. I think they're good. I think I think they're
1: good. I mean, the, the idea that you're going to have your quarterback completely untouched is wishful thinking. That's not real life. They, they talked about it a bunch all week of how this was, you know, what the the best front that they saw, and to have a new right guard in there who has not played significant football ever um, against a, a good interior defensive line, like, I, I'm, I'm, go- I'm okay with that performance. I, I think that's, that's just real-life football. And looking back so far, the first five games, I think the, the the experience with the interior of the offensive line, I know they're still sorting things out at left tackle, um, but interior-wise, like, that's been a huge strong point for why this team has been able to flip the script from where it was at a year ago because you're leaning on guys who have played football and have done it at a high level. You're not having to think about, you know, a wink, wink on the interior the of the offensive line. So I'm good with it. I'm also super impressed with Jonah Monheim. I think the, the fact that you go and you get uh, a transfer, a, a high-profile transfer in Bobby Haskins, there's a lot of teams that would have jumped at the opportunity to get him. And all the talk about Cortland Ford over the past year and a half as well, I know rightfully so I see the excitement there, but Monheim's been holding it down at right tackle. I'm good with where this offensive line's at. Are they perfect? No. Can they be better? Sure. But that's, I, I think you can win a conference championship with the, with how that, uh, that offensive line is playing.
0: Cortland Ford struggled in pass protection uh, this game and they ended up just going with Haskins for the rest of the game at a certain point. And, and Lincoln Riley said, you know, we just got rolling with Bobby in there and stuck with it. He would not commit to a left tackle or to keeping the rotation going. And it seems like we're probably still going to see both of them out there. I think they probably would like to get to one at some point, but I don't know if, if maybe it's also just kind of massaging the situation and they have such little depth now. Maybe Haskins is the better play right now, but you don't want Cortland Ford to – transfer out of the program and not have them next year i mean that could be part of it that's just, that's just me speculating
1: interesting yeah i mean i don't think it's crazy talk i mean you hit the nail on the head you have depth concerns like last thing you want is for someone to jump ship and if you believe that long-term colin ford is a starting right tackle for you like bobby haskins you know he's on the, the tail end of his career like holding on to a guy like that i think that's that's spot on and it I asked Lincoln Riley Monday night, like, is the goal to to get out of the rotation? And like you said, he he was uncommitted. And it is bizarre to be this deep into the season and still be trying to figure out your left tackle position. And to your earlier point, Ryan, about, hey, winning kind of covers everything up, that is definitely an aspect of that. If USC was losing and we still had to figure out the left tackle position, um, I think it would be a much, much bigger issue. But this is, for a top 10 football team in the country, to still be sorting through what exactly their left tackle plan is, is very bizarre. But <laughs> I want to say it's worked so far, but it has not been a huge issue, game-changing issue so far.
0: Well, I think you know part of it is definitely Cortland Ford getting hurt in the second game and, and maybe still not being 100% and being able to evaluate him at full strength. But I wouldn't be surprised if, if my theory holds some – hold some truth into it, but, but that's just me speculating. I, obviously, I don't know. Moving on, another notable takeaway for the offense, and this will be the last offensive topic for this week, was that we saw some different receivers get involved. And I think that was probably a function of them playing Arizona State and going into the game knowing that they were probably going to have some cushion in this game because we, we saw Kyron Hudson uh, get involved early. It wasn't like, you know, in the last few minutes – we saw Brandon Rice get more involved. Hudson has three catches for 46 yards and a touchdown. Rice three for 72. I was really impressed with Kyron Hudson in particular, as I have been since the spring, since he emerged in the spring. I really thought he was going to be more of a factor this year. I thought he would he would be in that rotation. It's just been a much smaller rotation than maybe we thought. And I fall into this trap every year, and my good my good buddy Antonio Morales from the Athletic gives me a hard time each year whenever I ask. The coach, uh, how many receivers do you see getting involved? And Lincoln said eight this year. I said, oh, it's eight-man rotation. They have room for this guy and this guy. And he goes, he goes, do you not recall last year when Graham said the same thing? I'm like, yeah, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, clearly that was that was not the way it's played out. But we, we, we see Kyron Hudson get involved, and all three of his catches were impressive. All three, uh, I think, two, one, one was definitely a great sideline grab, if not two, and then the, t- the touchdown, obviously. I wouldn't be surprised if he did earn more of a role going forward when he showed that they could trust him in, in big spots on big throws like that. Any thoughts on, on either of those two guys, Hudson or Rice?
1: Uh, my, my thought is, is more big picture. I think one, obviously it shows how talented this room is, but I also think, you know, in, in years past, when we would hear a Graham Harrell or a Clay Helton say that, you 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 viewed that comment as, oh, they're going to have eight strong or whatever. You viewed it as almost kind of to our earlier point about them massaging that room, so to speak, and not wanting guys to transfer and always feel like they're like one play away or have some sort of role or whatnot. But now in this new era, it doesn't feel like Lincoln has to say that because for a guy like Kyron Ware Hudson or a guy like Brennan Rice, it's, hey, just stay patient because when you are in the spot of Jordan Addison for Brennan Rice or when you are in that spot, for Kyle Ware-Hudson as maybe like the third receiver, you will be producing at a high level, and you will be a top Pac-12 receiver. And there is no doubt about it. Just, like, wait your time and be patient. So it it feels like that. You're you're not feeling that pressure where you're you're trying just to get rotate guys in there just for the sake of rotating guys in there. Um, And I think that that mold feels different than where it was a year ago. But I'm impressed with those guys. I mean, Ryan, you knew one of the first podcasts we did this offseason. I was a huge Terrell Bynum believer, yeah. and uh, he has not had a role this season. And I think it speaks to you know the, the the nuances of the transfer portal that I don't think he's a bad player, but I just think you have other guys that have popped him. Kyler Ware Hudson's one of them, and um, it'll be exciting to see in the years to come. As uh, I think he's going to be a tough guy to uh, to pass up, even if they go get some uh, some big time
0: recruits. It's an interesting point you make because I definitely see that perspective. And if you're a receiver, why would you not want to have any role in this offense and uh, guys are going to leave and spots will open up. But I know for a fact, they tried to make that same pitch to Gary Bryant and try to convince him to, to wait till next year, come back. You're going to be a, a, a big factor next year. And he was just too frustrated with what he saw through four games that he, w- he was done. He was out or, th- or three or three games. Actually, it was for him. So in this transfer of portal era, it's, it's, I know that Lincoln even referenced it in one of your Trojans live shows, where he said, "Just the realities—you're not going to be able to keep everybody. It's just reality. So, I, I don't think you can stress about it too much, but there is talent there, and I—I I don't think Gary Bryant will be the last receiver from this team to transfer out before December, or January comes. That's uh, seems like a pretty safe bet to me. We'll see though, but uh, but Kyron Hudson very impressive. Brendan Rice coming along. I know that Lincoln said last night on the show with you that. He thought Rice was right on the cusp of a, of a true breakout. So we'll see We'll see where that goes from there with those guys. But that about rounds up my offensive takeaways from this game, unless there's anything else you want to add.
1: Really with an increased role. Yes. In large part, it sounds like because of his health and whatnot. It'll be interesting to see on the back end of this season or as we get into the second half of the season where things get out there. But uh, I think it's enough, enough offensive football.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get to the defense. Let's talk about Alex Grinch. And let's talk about second half adjustments. How many times over the last X amount of years did we hear or even engage in bemoaning the inability to adjust at halftime? And it just seemed like a, it just seemed like a foregone conclusion that whatever was going wrong in the first half was going to continue. The defense comes out and really struggles. They, they give up scores in all three of Arizona State's first half drives two touchdowns and a field goal. They get beat for a long wheel route. They get beat around the edge for a long run. A couple passes. This seems to be some breakdown in coverage. And it was really a discouraging first half. And then they come out after halftime and force three straight punts, allow uh, it was either 14 yards and 11 plays or 11 yards and 14 plays in the third quarter to really set the tone for USC to pull, pull away in this game. And I don't think you can look at that and say that that just happened. I think that was clearly a second half adjustment of some kind. I'm not a defensive coach, so I can't point to you and say this is what they did differently. We talked to Alex Grinch, and his message at halftime, he said, was, we don't have to make the same mistakes we made in the first half again. Like, And it really is in line with his, what he's been saying all season, is that he, he thinks all of this is very fixable, or as he used this word Saturday, elementary, that this is not like very complex stuff that they have to clean up. It's very simple. And I think for the first time he started, well, he's been very candid with us all year, but I think he started to show a little crack, a little frustration over at Saturday when he was asked, well, what can you do to to get past that and, and clean up that so it doesn't happen in the first half? And he said, yeah, coach better. Then he said, I think we're actually pretty good coaches around here. I think we got a good linebackers coach. I think our safeties coach, I know him, it's Grinch. I think we got a good good coordinator. I like the guy. He's got a coach better, also Grinch. And I I think what he was saying is basically, we have drilled this home every week, and in this present moment, I don't know what else we have to say or do to get the message through. That's kind of the, the takeaway I got. He continued and said, Who's got the B gap? Well, we don't design a defense that doesn't have someone there, and so you gotta do a better job either teaching it or not recommending that certain things get executed that way. So I, I sense a little bit of frustration coming out of him, which is which is good because overall it was not a bad defensive game. When you look at the final numbers, you look at the second half shutdown, and I just I'll keep saying it, this defense seems so far advanced from where it was last year to me, to the eye test. But he is clearly not satisfied and I think all USC fans kind of like that response.
1: Yeah, no, I think uh, it speaks to the the, the the new standard that's being set. And your point about halftime adjustments, I, I don't even know how much of it was truly X's and O's, and it was more mentality. I mean, that was, that was the gist I got from Eric Gentry right. in, in his comments was, you know, maybe you go out a little flat um, just from a psychological component in the first half, knowing it's Arizona State, knowing that, you know, we're, we're feeling good about ourselves and, and, and you're laying off the gas a little bit and, and going to the second half, you're like, that's not the standard of the type of football that we want to play, which maybe in years past, that was, even if you said it, even if you said, oh, on the standard, that's not the USC standard. Internally, maybe you didn't truly believe that. And I think guys are now there. But the point about elementary and whatnot, two things come out to me. One, it, it, it's saying from Alex Grinch's point of view that, he knows he has the talent there. Um, like you, you can go out and make the play. Versus at Washington State, maybe he's not said elementary because he knows that he's at a talent deficiency oftentimes when he's lining up. So effort only gets you so far. But at the end of the day, if you don't have the talent, you can't make that play. For USC, he's probably looking at his linebackers, his safeties, his corners, defensive ends, and said, you know what? We do have the talent. We should expect to make that play. But one of the first touchdowns for ASU was just a blown coverage right there. I'm sure they wrecked that play a bunch. It's just a matter of executing or whatnot. And it'll be interesting to see, like, the whole gap integrity thing, like, that, that that's funny because that's not a talent thing. That, that's just doing your job, lining up, and sacrificing, you know, your, yourself, your role for what that job is. When guys are not having gap integrity, when USC's at their best, it's because you can, you know, the, the, the solution there is you can bench that guy. You can put the guy in behind him that's going to do his role. And then that is the motivating factor for guys doing their job is because they know if they don't, they're going to get benched. I don't know if USC's defense truly has that depth to really be pushing at that competitive level, like SC was doing in the absolute heyday, where I don't care how big of a five-star you are, if you're not going to line up in the B gap, you cannot play because we have the dude right behind you. I don't think the depth is there at that scale. I still think this defense is doing really good things. But that, to me, is the next level for this defense that you're able to get into that would force that uh, whole competition makes everyone better type of, type of mindset.
0: It's exactly what we talked about many times already with the offense and, and the blocking and saying if you don't block, you're not going to play because they, they do have that depth at, re- at receiver, at running back, and, and they can enforce that and, and say, okay, you, you were a top 100 prospect, but you're not blocking as well as this guy. I'm sorry, you're not going to play. And that's not about anybody specifically. I, I'm just you know, generalizing that there. But, uh, no, it's a great point. And I think that the way recruiting is going right now and some of the talent they have lined up on the defensive side, I think they're going to fix that depth problem pretty quickly. I also, again, I'll keep reiterating it, I would expect double-digit transfers to come in again this offseason. So I think that they will address that and, and fix that pretty quickly. But let's go over the stats for the defense, just where they are nationally through five games. They ranked fifty seventh in total defense at three hundred and fifty eight point six yards per game. It's respectable. Uh, definitely better than where it was. Thirty uh, first in scoring defense, nineteen point six points per game, which factors in you know their opportunistic style, um, where that you know you give up a lot of yards but not as many points. And to that end, they are still now tied for the national lead in turnovers with fifteen, and tied for fifth with nineteen sacks. So there's a lot to like here. I should uh, I should add in a note. We talked to Nick Figueroa on Tuesday, and I asked him uh, just about the, the turnover mindset of this team, and, it, and he corrected me. He goes, "Actually, we call them takeaways because it's it's uh, it's an active move by us to do that." I said, "Oh, okay. Take takeaways are good, but over uh, <laughs> overall, I like I'm on the message board every Saturday during the game, and I just I. I, I still see all this frustration with the defense. And I know it's not perfect, but I just know what I watched the last handful of years. And I just think it's so far advanced. Our defense was
1: bad last year, straight up. It wasn't even underperforming. It was just straight up bad. And no, I'm right with you. I mean, the jumps that we've made, and and I always try to keep it in perspective, just in reference to where we were at a couple months ago. I had big concerns with the defense back in August. And a lot of those concerns have been, alleviated just in terms of general depth on the interior of the offense or the defensive line in terms of, you know, where the secondary position's at. Like I wasn't really sure where the corner position was at necessarily to start week one. And now it's a huge strength and those corners are playing at a high level. Um, so similar feeling to how I am with the offense line. I'm good with where the defense is at in relation to where we thought this summer. Is it the best defense ever? No, but it's so much better than where it was at a year ago. I, uh, I completely agree, right?
0: And uh, well, I can't pass up the opportunity. So coming from a journalism background, uh, having covered a few different teams, schools, I very much embraced the journalism ethos of, of being neutral and being impartial and objective, and just you know covering the story. Uh, you know certainly, given that I run a USC site, I would like them to do well because it's, it's better for business and it's more fun to cover this team as opposed to the past ones. So it's not like I don't care about the outcomes, but I, I, in the moment I try and be objective and neutral, but I cannot be objective or neutral, I found, when it comes to the Oklahoma Sooners, because their fan base has just driven me insane the last 10 months by hijacking every Twitter thread that mentions Lincoln Riley or Alex Wrench and just unleashing a tirade. And it's been such an embarrassing display by a fan base that it's changed my entire opinion of that program. I used to look at them as one of the most respected programs in the country and I, you know, success results wise, they are history wise, they are, but that fan base just is now the face of it for me. And so I couldn't help, but take notice of the blowout loss to TCU. Ironically with Lincoln Riley's brother as the offensive coordinator for TCU putting up, I think, 27 points in the first quarter. I forget what the numbers were, but it was just a beatdown. And all we heard for the last 10 months was, oh, we're we're so much happier now that we actually have a coach who cares about defense, and we got rid of Grinch finally because he couldn't do anything. And uh, I don't know. I just – part of me – and, you know, nothing against Brent Venables. Seems like a nice guy. Not really against him. But but those fans, those fans deserved a game like that. And I got to say, I kind of enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, the uh, the overlap of uh, Lincoln Rally's little bro shredding the Sooners was something for sure. I'm sure it was interesting watching that game for, for him. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we, we definitely won out on that whole deal. I still, still feel bad for Sooner fans, but like you said, maybe not handling it the best way uh, 12 months or 10
0: months later. Well, I, I respect your – your Compassion for them, I do not share it at this point, but uh, I'm
1: living it day to day like <laughs> you are, so I guess it's a little uh, a little different,
0: yeah. And 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 you know, if, if uh, if that hadn't been the response from them, there would have been no, no feeling towards them, you know, lifelong fans. They, they would have said, Okay, you know, seems like you hired a good coach, best of luck to you. I hope it goes well, but they were just nauseating, uh, and I think they finally maybe quieted up for a little bit. Last defensive thing I wanted to get to, and then we'll get to your, your defensive call of the game. Eric Gentry, and we probably should have talked more about him last week because he was kind of the story last week going against his former team, Arizona State. I did a feature story on him for game day. I talked to his high school coach from Philadelphia and just kind of got some you know perspective. And, and he goes, he's always going to be overlooked and underrated because of his how slender he is. It's just it's going to happen. Coming out of high school, like, it was – it came down to Virginia and Arizona State for him. So it wasn't like these national powerhouses beating down this guy's door. And he enters the transfer portal after, obviously, his first season at Arizona State for reasons we know. And his high school coach goes, I get, I get a call from a coach, I won't say who. And the coach goes, Yo, Eric Gentry, need him. Got to have him. We, we want him here. And uh, Gentry's high school coach goes, Bro, I tried to give him to you a year ago and you, didn't, you weren't interested. And I was like, no, no, we just didn't know he could play linebacker. We thought he was a tight end, maybe. Like, just the the, the breakdown and evaluation of what this guy could do uh, by many schools. And then for USC to have this thought that he could be a middle linebacker. Because, again, he, he was more of an outside linebacker even last year at Arizona State. As I understand it, I didn't watch any of those games, so I don't have a visual recall. But that's what I've been told by Arizona State people, that he was more of an outside linebacker. And to put him in middle linebacker, Lincoln Riley basically said we were talking about it very much from an offensive perspective. And we said, wouldn't it kind of be a waste if we had this, you know, unique guy with a seven foot one wingspan to only have him taking away half the field when he can be in the middle and maybe take away both sides? And we've seen that just the Oregon State game was a great example where his interception, he's just you know, playing center in the middle and lunges to his right, you know, uses his full length and gets that interception. The the game ceiling pick that he tips, he he goes back and he's, he's deep in the coverage now and leaps up and gets his hand on it so Max Williams can pick it up. What I want to ask you, Max, is from an offensive perspective, a quarterback perspective, how frustrating would it be to have an Eric Gentry across the line?
1: It would be really frustrating because, you know, in a lot of – third and long situations, like, the matchup is whoever the Mike linebacker is covering. Like, when, when tight ends are open and you're seeing, like, third down get right past the sticks, turn around, and, 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 and that tight end, like, the whole, like, Tony Gonzalez, Antonio Gates type routes, like, the reason those works is because the worst coverage guy at that point is oftentimes the middle linebacker. For USC, it's not the case. I think it's awesome. I think it's cutting edge, having this length in the middle of the field, you mentioned the Oregon State game. The Stanford game also sticks out to me in terms of his impact from a from a uh, coverage perspective in the middle. I mean, it's it's a big deal. It, it really is. I think that's a matchup that you, you circle offensively that doesn't necessarily exist with USC. And this week it'll be interesting too because uh, Washington State has a grad transfer slot receiver who's like a little small little small white date. <laughs> He's like 5'7", five, 5'8", five, versus you got Eric Gentry <laughs> who's 6'6". Six, six. Like, that matchup in itself will be uh, will be fun to watch. But it's tough. It, it really is. And combine that with the exotic coverages that Alex Grinch can throw out where you're not exactly sure where Gentry might be dropping to and what safety is going to roll in behind him, that combination together, putting Gentry in space, is, uh, is tough from an offensive perspective.
0: Well, I do want to – allow time for the Washington State breakdown, but I'm excited that we have a a double dose of analysis period from you here, Max. What was your favorite Alex Grinch call? Yeah, it was the
1: Caleb Bullock interception and it jumped out to me. I mean, Gentry had a role in it as well. And to me, it, it jumps out because this is a really exotic call from a college defense. And, When you watch the presser after the fact and you see uh, Grinch talk about how the team struggled in in zone coverage, struggled in zone coverage. Well, part of the reason that I think the team did struggle in zone coverage is because that defensive playbook for USC is deep. They can get to a lot of different looks. And when you have a lot in your defensive playbook, that's where you might find guys that are slightly out of their zone, right? And they're trying to disguise one way and drop the other way. So I almost kind of take – If you're going to get the good, you almost got to take some of that bad because it's just a byproduct of of how aggressive this defensive scheme is. But on the Kalen Bullock interception, as a quarterback, if I'm Emory Jones, like this is tough. I'm sitting in my nice, cozy chair, and I have my clean all-22 footage, and this is tough. This is a great disguise by USC. It's going to be hard in a podcast format, but big picture – ASC lines up in a 3-by-1 formation, and USC initially lines up in what looks like man coverage with Kalen Bullock rolling down over the top of uh, of Swinson, their, uh, their tight end. And on the snap of the ball, right as Emery Jones looks down to like go back to the right, right in between the center's legs, they rotate coverage, and they put the safety that looked next to cut. There's three safeties in the game. Um, the safety, uh, other side of Bullock, who looks like he's in man coverage, they have him sprint into what is cover two and they have Bullock who looks like a man coverage over number three he drops in to the Tampa two area which is like you usually hear Tampa two that's the, the the linebacker's job right that's Gentry's job the fact that they're having a safety play that role like as a quarterback you're not even thinking that so now you have three safeties all swarming around all in that the, the, taking care of kind of that the, the deep portion of the field, coupled with the fact you're in the red zone, so windows are even tighter. Like, if you're Emory Jones, this is really hard to, to see. And what's crazy is, so he, does, he doesn't catch that from Kalen Bullock. He's able to beat Kalen Bullock from that deep middle of the area, right over the tight end. He jumps the interception. But when you go back and watch that play, even if Bullock wasn't there, Eric Gentry would have picked this ball off because you lose track of him. It looks like Gentry's buzzing out to the flat, right? He's kind of switching responsibilities with Bullock. And, uh yeah, if, if Bullock wasn't there, Gentry comes down with his pick. It's a great call by uh, Grinch, great execution, great disguise, and just all-around high-level defensive football. Because Jones... He might not be the best quarterback, but he's not awful. And you completely fooled him on this play. And uh, it's a win all around for, for, for the USC defense. So go back, watch that play. I know it's hard in the podcast format, but maybe uh, watch the play with my voiceover and uh, you'll see some high-level X's and O's.
0: And some high-level analysis. That was awesome. That was awesome. It, it, feel free to uh, to make it a weekly defensive segment, too, if you got one. We, we love it. We love the analysis.
1: dialing up plays like this, I will. That one is fun to watch. The quarterback in me even respects that. That is tough, tough, tough to go up against.
0: I love it. Well, let's uh, get to Washington State because it is a big game and we want to talk about this matchup. What's interesting to me, first of all, before we get into the actual team, is is some of the overlap and, and, and connections and relationships. Uh, Washington State this offseason, obviously they, they had the whole Nick Rolovich thing last year where – he was ousted midway through the season you know, for the, the COVID vaccine stuff. And Jake Dickert takes over as interim head coach and uh, does well enough down the stretch to get the permanent job. They start strong this year. But he overhauls the offensive staff in the offseason. And he brings in Eric Morris, who was the head coach at Incarnate, War, War, <laughs> Incarnate Word, and also brings along their quarterback, Cam Ward, from Incarnate Word, Ward, Word. Word. Uh, to, to give him a new identity on offense. And also, the, I think the receiver, maybe you're mentioning Farrell, is also also from, uh, from there. But Eric Morris played at Texas Tech as a wide receiver, and his position coach was Lincoln Riley. So that's an interesting connection. I've, I talked to him today about that. I think you got into it on the, on, on the show Monday, perhaps. But uh, just an interesting connection there. Then of course, the O-line coach at Washington State is Clay McGuire, who was here last year. And let me just tell you, for a guy who was here a year, like that guy was universally respected. Like the, the linemen, even now, they're always careful when we talk about the impact of Josh Henson. But also, I mean, like we really like McGuire last year and he, and he was a, a big help to us. I've talked to the parents of offensive linemen who still talk about him. So he's at Washington State. But remember, Riley came in before that last game and had like a week of overlap with the, the previous staff. And he said today, you know, it's whenever you come to a new place, everyone wants to tell you how things are and and the inside, uh, you know, nitty gritty of the program. And he goes, you don't really know what to believe because you haven't been in a foxhole with those people. You, you don't know how reliable their read is or or where they're coming from, what their perspective is. He goes, but with Clay, like I know Clay, like they were at tech at the same time. I trust Clay. And so he was able to take a lot from Clay McGuire uh, a lot of input from him on on kind of what he was inheriting and and when some things about the program and none of us really asked the question. And it's probably not appropriate to ask, but I do wonder, he's mentioned several times how much he respects Clay McGuire and their relationship and their history and that they're good friends. If he was not at all a consideration to be retained on staff, I think ultimately the answer is that Lincoln Riley knew they needed to make a splash in recruiting of the offensive line and had to have a big name in that spot to recruit nationally. And that's why they went in pride, hence away the from Texas A&M, and gave him the offensive coordinator title to help induce him to come. I wonder if there was any consideration about keeping Clay McGuire just because of their relationship. But anyways, interesting connections there. That, that always stands out to me. I like those kind of backstories and, and, and that this in particular is, is a lot of overlap.
1: Yeah, the receiver coach. I don't have my notes in front of me, but uh, Wazi's receiver coach too was uh, played at Tech, I believe, with Michael Crabtree as well. And uh, Lincoln, I believe, was a GA during that time. Okay. So tons of tons of Tech and uh, an Air Raid overlap, which I feel like is a the theme nowadays in college football. Yeah.
0: Well, well, let's get into the the Cougars and the Cougars are four and one. They won their first three games. That included a road win over a then ranked Wisconsin team, which of course we know now that Wisconsin's maybe not so good. they already fired their head coach this week. It all led to a showdown in week four with Oregon and Washington state led by 12 with like four minutes left and let that game slip away. Oregon won 44, 41, put up a ton of yards, like just really had their way with Washington state through the air and on the ground. But it's interesting because there's been games where the Cougars have been really good defensively and they rank really high in the national rankings in terms of tackles for loss. Their linebacker, I'm gonna mispronounce his first name because I never knew how to say it but but Dion Henley Dion Henley was a guy that if fans recall USC really wanted as, as a transfer from Nevada like that was one of their priority targets and they really pushed hard for him he came on a visit and just kind of surprised everybody by choosing Washington State and certainly it's paid off for him because he's gonna he has real NFL draft stock now where maybe he didn't at nevada last year he's been a star for them he was the conference player of the week two weeks ago but uh i will that's that's where my analysis stops and max's begins max let's start with washington state what is their identity under jake dickert now
1: their identity is a complete football team and it's i don't want to say a defensive led team but that to me is the biggest difference of Hey, we've been used to seeing good Washington State teams up there the past five, seven years, under Leach and whatnot, and in large part it was because you had these really explosive offenses and then you just had a defense that was going to hang on. That's not the case. This Washington State defense is a good defense. You, you, mentioned, uh, you mentioned Henley's name, uh, Francisco Maligoa, one of the other linebackers is solid, and they're active up front. Um, actually, I don't want to say active because they've always been active. I think they're skilled up front, which hasn't necessarily been the case. They got uh, Ron Stone Jr. and Brennan Jackson. Uh, Stone Jr. is one of the best pass rushers in the conference. He's number ten. Brennan Jackson's number eighty. They have two defensive linemen in the eighties that'll start for them: Travion Brown and uh, and Brennan Jackson. Which looks goofy when you watch the film, but both they're, they're, they're stout. This is a this is a solid defensive line. Good linebackers, I and mean, then their secondary. It is, is respectable. Nothing flashy. This will be by far their biggest test, no doubt, going against SC. But it's a, this is a good defense. Hence the fact of, you know, you keep a Cal team that scored, what, like 50 the week before or forty high 40s the week before, you hold them to nine points. You hold Wisconsin to, what was it, 14 points. This is a good defense, um, which has to me the biggest, uh, biggest jump with uh, – with the new head coach, um, Jake Dickert, who is a defensive-minded guy. So that's that, that's, that, that's one difference that sticks out. And then offensively, um, their quarterback, Cam Ward, who you mentioned, he won the uh, the FCS Heisman last year, so he can play at a high level. He, I think, was everyone's sweetheart in the offseason in terms of like, oh, the guy that's going to shock the conference. I think those expectations have tempered off. I think you've noticed that, you know, the level of competition has made his game not perfect per se, but he is still a really skilled quarterback. He's got a longer release, so it looks a little goofy. Um, he is mobile. I'm, he's not he's not uh, absolutely dynamic, but definitely have to respect his legs, and uh, he's got great arm strength. So um, Cam Ward is a, a good quarterback. Their receivers are good, I think uh, kind of par for the course of what we're used to out of Washington State. Donovan Ali is bigger, and Deshaun Stripley, those are kind of one, uh, the two outside guys. And then Robert Farrell, the little slot from Incarnate Ward, he does some good things for them. And then Lincoln Victor, the captain, um, he's played a lot of ball for them, and those are kind of their four receivers. Running back-wise, they got Nikia Watson, who's just solid. He's not as good as uh, Max... Uh, Number 21, i yeah, Borgy. Um, he's not as good as him, but but solid there uh, all around. This is a good football team. You, you mentioned it. They should be five and zero. They're four and one now. They should be five and zero. They let that game against Oregon slip away. If they were five and zero, the whole vibe around this game could be a lot different. I think Oregon State. Right? They had they had USC and Utah, and they lose back to back. So I feel like you know people have have, have cooled off of them, but. The idea that Oregon State might be better than Washington State. I think Washington State is better than Oregon State. So it shows you the caliber of game that USC is walking into. It will help, obviously, play at home, not up in Pullman. But this is a good football team that, that USC has got to come uh, ready to
0: go with. Uh, another thing on war- Ward. Ward, ward. <laughs> I, I mentioned it earlier that it was a kind of a, um, a neat move or an interesting move for Dickert to go, we want to reinvent our offense. Let's get a coordinator and his coach who already have continuity and have them come in and, and, and do their thing and uh, taking them both from incarnate word. I've heard a lot of talk about Ward as being having some Mahomes home's tendencies, not comparing the caliber of player, but but the off platform throws from, di- from different angles. Uh, Cal defensive coordinator, Peter Sermon compared them to a, a, a shortstop or second baseman, turning a double play and that he can just whip, whip, whip that ball sidearm with great velocity and, um, so he, he has kind of that array to his game. Is that fair? That's fair. I think
1: that's the positive way to say it. Right? Um, <laughs> I think the negative way is, you know, his fundamentals can be wacky at times.
0: <laughs> okay, all
1: right. Um, it works both ways. I mean, he's a guy. He's an athletic guy back there. Um, he's got a longer release. The arm angles are spot on. He 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 can make plays. He's found a way to get away with it. But in terms of if you were being a quarterback coach and you were saying, hey. Um, you know, you got to clean up this. There there's certainly things to clean up, for, for sure, but he's a good player, no doubt. Well, to
0: wrap it up with the matchup preview, give us what you think is the, the pivotal matchup within the matchup. What, what's going to kind of determine this game?
1: Yeah, I think it'll be... Um, I think it'll be USC's run game against Washington State's defensive line because... I could see a scenario where USC struggles to run the rock in this game because I respect where Washington State's defensive line is at, and if that's the case, and we get into this mold where Wazoo's able to only rush three or only rush four, and you're forcing the the entire offense to go on Caleb Williams' right arm, that to me, as we saw in Oregon State, is the recipe towards finding success. So if USC can run the rock, they're going to win this game. If they can't, I think... uh, Wazoo's going to be uh, in a favorable spot.
0: Well, you mentioned Washington State shutting down Cal last week, 28-9, and the previous week Cal did score 49 points. As you mentioned, and had 599 yards against Arizona, which is probably as much a product of Arizona as it is Cal. But in that game, Jaden Knott, their freshman running back, phenom, had 274 rushing yards and three touchdowns he did not come close to replicating that against the Cougars who really frustrated him and the entire offense for a good portion of that game. So that's a, an astute matchup uh, to highlight. And as always, we will close with predictions. Max, if you have the guess right now, what's your prediction? I
1: will go 35, 31 USC. I think it's going to be a great football game. Another key aspect is can USC create turnovers? Um, when Cam Ward's at his worst, Misses kind of stating the obvious, but he can play at a high level when the turnovers start coming out, That's where things go uh, go downhill. But I think it's a really good football team. This is a good Washington State team. Great test for SC, but uh, they keep things rolling.
0: You know, I am also seeing a similar kind of game. I'm going 34-28. So I think it's going to be tense down the stretch. I think the defense is going to be asked to make a stop in the final minutes again, protecting a six-point lead, and we'll see what happens. But great stuff. Excellent analysis. I think everyone who listened to this podcast is more intelligent about football for it. We thank you, Max.
1: Hey, it's fun. Appreciate everyone hanging out. Let's go get the win this weekend.
0: All right. Another full show, another full podcast, and more great analysis from Max. This is our fourth year doing it. And the uh, breaking down his favorite play call of the week has been my favorite segment that we've done in the entire duration and run of this podcast. So we will keep that going each week. I love that he threw us a, a defensive play as well. So if if we can do that, we'll we'll do that as well. The more the merrier. Really looking forward to this game against Washington State on Saturday. I think the Cougars are a very well coached team. Will be a really good challenge for the Trojans for all the reasons we talked about. And you know, as you could tell by our predictions definitely think that USC is the better team and should win this game. But it's going to be a test. It's going to be a challenge. It should be a really fun matchup. It'll be a fun day in the Coliseum. Really hope that the crowds keep building. I would love to just be able to experience, you know, a a, a true vintage USC football crowd on Saturday. I think we're getting closer and closer to that. may take more time, but, I mean, there's plenty to be excited about each week and plenty to talk about each week. So we will be back with you Sometime next week, I will try and get the podcast up a little bit earlier in the week, but it was a little bit busy the last few days, and it takes time to produce and perfect and and give you the best version of the show we can. And yeah, everyone, enjoy your weeks, enjoy your weekends, Uh, enjoy game day. And if you are not part of TrojanSports.com, please consider joining us and hop in our live in-game conversation. It can get pretty, pretty lively in there, pretty fun. I'm in the thread all game long, uh, dropping notes from the stadium pregame, you know, commentary throughout. We'd love to have even more people join in with us. Consider subscribing to Trojansports.com and get access to our premium message board as well as all of our content as we load it up each week with stories and some stories you can't find elsewhere. We always try and have some exclusive angles, exclusive features, exclusive reporting, So we uh, want to give you every reason to feel like you're getting your value from these sites. With that, we will see you next week.